This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with a panel of leading academic researchers in the fields of biosensing, nanotechnology, biochemistry, and commercialization of Aptima-based biosensing platforms. We cover off some of healthcare's biggest challenges that could be addressed with this technology and how that can support personalized healthcare using real-time monitoring and closed-loop system thinking. This episode was recorded online on June 15th, 2021, I was attended by a sold-out live audience representing health tech investors, developers, innovators, researchers, and healthcare providers. We cover introductions of an esteemed panel of professors and PhDs, covering topics such as biosensors, and where is the leading edge of technology in this domain. We talk through its potential and the role of biosensors in designing personalised healthcare, and the current challenges and potential opportunities that are available right now, as well as into the future. This is a fascinating and exciting emerging commercialization opportunity for digital health innovators to firstly understand the potential of this technology and then work with emerging platforms such as Australian-based company Neutromics to take the leading edge of research findings and patented technology into a pragmatic modern healthcare method that can enhance and approach the relationship between healthcare professional and their clients in a much more efficient way. Biosensors and aptimers can be used in a variety of healthcare settings, covering areas such as diagnosis, real-time monitoring, dosing, and even designing better healthcare user experiences to overcome some of the big problem areas where traditional, less consistently effective approaches to individualised healthcare have existed. If you're interested in seeing where the leading edge of biosensing is at, you'll get a lot out of this episode. Let's jump in. Welcome to our Reimagining Healthcare live stream and podcast, the topic of which is called The Promise of Biosensing, Achieving the Vision of Personalised Medicine. Well, I'll be moderating an esteemed panel of leading experts in fields covering bio-nanoscience and nanomedicine, electrochemical aptima biosensors, and medtech commercialisation, to name a few. We'll be discussing the commercial and real-world opportunity coming about from the convergence of these fields to address some of the world's biggest healthcare challenges and problems, that will move toward achieving the vision of personalized medicine. This live stream has come together via a collaboration between Core Plus, Neutromics and HealthTechX and the panelists, where all parties share a philosophy of open networks, co-design, co-creating and iterating toward our respective visions. Core Plus is a digital health patient and practice management software as a service platform with a mission to connect, help and grow Australian healthcare service providers with digital-first healthcare service experiences for their clients. Neutromics is a leading-edge biosensor platform incorporating wearable sensor and software solutions to reimagine how we prevent chronic disease and inspire to achieve a world with zero preventable deaths due to lack of timely biological patient data. And HealthTechX is a co-design, co-create and co-launch digital health events and startup innovation community, bringing together innovative providers, developers, experts and investors to commercially trial and launch innovations that help achieve a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. 
I'm your host and moderator today. My name is Iani Sopanos. I'm a founder and executive director of HealthTechX and a founder and CEO of Core Plus and the host of the Reimagining Healthcare podcast and live stream. After my own experiences as a consumer of healthcare, I'm driven to make an impact in the areas of digital-first healthcare service design and ultimately support our healthcare professions with enhanced approaches to both work-life balance and healthcare outcomes for their clients using digital health innovations. I'm delighted to introduce an incredible panel today to have this discussion. And without further ado, let me introduce each panelist in no order of priority. Up front is Professor Justin Gooding, who is a Centia Professor at the University of New South Wales and a founding co-director at the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network and founding co-director of the Australian Centre for Nanomedicine. Justin is one of the world's leading experts on biosensing, an ARC Australian Laureate Fellow. He has published over 370 papers on and including nature nanotechnology, nature biotechnology, nature immunology, nature communications, and science advances. He has authored 14 patents, one textbook, and has been cited over 19,000 times. Along today also is Dr. Simon Corey, a senior lecturer at Monash University and chief investigator at the ARC Centre of Excellence in Convergent Bio-Nanoscience and Technology at the University of Queensland. Simon is an expert in biosensors and bioassays. He's worked in Seattle to develop rapid genotyping assays for DNA methylation analysis and HPV genotyping. He spent six years working on wearable immunoassays for selectively capturing circulating disease proteins via the skin. His research interests lie in developing nanoparticles and related biomaterials for applications in biosensing, bioassays, and medical devices. We also have Professor Kevin Plaxco, apologies again for the error in the title there, who is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of California, Santa Barbara as well as a Vice Chair of Chemistry and Biochemistry at UCSB and an Associate Director of the Centre of Bioengineering at US UCSB. Kevin is the inventor of Neutromics Biosensing Technology and a world leader in the field of biosensing and he's known for his incredible work in the field of biomolecular folding in the development of sensors, adaptable services and smart materials. He has also co-authored over 200 papers and a dozen patents on protein folding, protein dynamics and folding-based sensors, and is recognised by Thomas Reuters as one of the most highly cited chemists of the prior decade. We also have Dr. Kaylin Leung, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Santa Barbara's Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Kaylin is from Canada and is a researcher who is developing and optimising electrochemical aptima biosensors. Her specialties are electrochemistry, surface science, and their application to biosensors and is currently in Melbourne working with Dr. Kevin Plaxco to commercialise the Neutromics Biosensors for personalised healthcare. And finally on the panel is Rob Crowder, the Head of Product at Neutromics. And Rob is a product development leader who has worked with over 100 companies on feasibility, design and commercialisation of novel hardware products. And he has passion for medtech and for finding the sweet spot for a product market fit where the right product is built that results in maximum health impact and business success. Our aim today is to add value to you, the listener and participants in this live stream. And as a result, and in the spirit of live streaming, the panel actively encourages you to submit any questions you may have via the YouTube comments section you're viewing from. And whilst we anticipate and encourage questions dynamically throughout the discussion, we have a high level framework that will navigate the discussion journey through. And I'll try and work your questions into the mix as we go. So what are we discussing today? 
we're discussing the promise of biosensors and how we can achieve the vision of personalized medicine. Of course, this begs the question of addressing what are biosensors? They're not a radically new idea. So given where we've come from and how they've been used, where are we currently at? And what opportunities and challenges lay ahead for this field? We discuss why this is relevant and how healthcare culture can be reimagined or enhanced given the current leading edge in biosensing and its trajectory from here. So with that said, let's jump in. Professor Justin Gooding, what is a biosensor? That's a good question, Yanni. So according to the definition of a biosensor, you take a biological molecule that's very, very selective for the biomarker you want to detect and you integrate it with some sort of signal transducer, something like a, an electrode or an optical device. And that biomolecule will be something like an enzyme or an antibody or a sequence of DNA. And the strength of the technology or the concept is that because the biomolecules are so selective for the thing you want to detect, that biomarker, that you can do it directly in the complex sample where you find that biomarker. So directly in blood, in the case of a glucose meter, which is the absolute archetype of a, a biosensor. But of course, could also be with some sort of engineered fluorescent protein inside a cell that could tell you something about the cell action. But the glucose biosensor really tells you what the promise is. That is the most used analytical device in the world by an order of magnitude. 1.5 billion glucose measurements are done every single day by people remote from any sort of laboratory. And so that's really the thing is that a biosensors can take the analytical measurement, that diagnostic measurement, out of the laboratory. And the fact that it can be done by the general public really is exceedingly exciting and changes the lives of someone with diabetes from a very restricted life to us almost not knowing. And many of us have seen people use them, glucose meters, and how exciting that is, just a small prick of blood, and they've got an answer within a few seconds. But that concept was actually invented in 1962 by a gentleman called Leyland Clark and Lyons. And ever since that original idea, people thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do these continuously? And it's taken us a long time, but we can continuously monitor things, but we can only do it with, again, glucose or a few other examples. And you know that from the continuous blood glucose monitors that a diabetic patients are now using. But there's this other class of biosensors where things like antibodies and DNA binds to a, the biomarker. And you know those, they're, they're also in our everyday lives through the pregnancy test kits. But again, they're one use and throw away. So then the big question is, could we possibly do continuous use biosensing with that class of biosensors? Thank you, Justin. Any other comments on what the biosensor is and how we could relate to it in today's terms? Justin did hit the nail on the head there, and that the, the continuous glucose monitor, the diabetics wear, which is transforming how we manage and treat diabetes, is a great and archetypal example of what can be done with biosensors, at least in theory. And it goes well beyond that. The potential is really enormous. Biology can make molecules that'll recognize almost any water-soluble target. And we humans know how to exploit that. We humans have in vitro in laboratory technologies now that allow us to create new proteins and new DNA molecules and new RNA molecules that will bind anything, any water-soluble target, at least in theory, and in practice, by an enormous number of different targets, which is great specificity and really high affinity. And so if we could come up with a generic platform that could detect when a biomolecule bound its target, we'd have an amazing analytical tool. And these binding events are reversible and, and generally rapid. And so not, not only can we use these recognition elements to detect targets, but we can use them to monitor rising and falling concentrations of them in real time, at least in theory. 
And in practice, biology already does it. All of us are filled with receptors that are responding to specific molecular cues in real time in these crazy environments. As Justin pointed out, the other advantage of biosensors, at least in theory, is that they can work in very complex media, blood, interstitial fluid in the body. So we're talking about a general technology that in theory can measure anything and can measure it in real time and can measure it in really complicated environments such as those found in the body. A lot of that goes towards the personalized healthcare idea, that ability to have a richer source of data, to be able to do things like monitoring. Perhaps Rob, I'll ask you, what do we mean by personalized healthcare in the context of this field? Yeah, I mean, it's a well-used term, personalized healthcare, but in this context, it's really quite exciting and potential is the key word in this. We're actually at a point now where there's a confluence in technologies that are going to allow us to open up a whole new stream of insights for clinicians and experts that can use this data in meaningful ways to actually deliver on that promise of personalized healthcare. So as Kevin and Justin described, being able to access biological data in real time and continuously has tremendous value and uses. The typical example out there is the glucose monitors, and we know a lot about that. But given this confluence of technologies now, we can access interstitial fluid and access a high number of other targets, which are incredibly useful. So in the fields of, say, therapeutic drug monitoring or in other acute settings in hospitals, in preventative healthcare, there are massive amounts of work being done on biomarkers, exogenous markers, endogenous markers that are useful for clinicians. And that can only help accelerate the path towards personalized healthcare. And I think our job at Neutromics is to basically continue with our excitement levels in that potential and to take on board and translate the work that our wonderful scientists are doing for us and actually build these sensors that can monitor things which are important. That will change the nature of healthcare, we think, and it will deliver on the promise of personalized health. Dr. Simon Corey, I'll bring you in this point as well. What's your take on how we ensure current approaches to healthcare benefit from data and more informed decisions and this continual march towards personalized healthcare? Yeah, thanks, Yanni. I think Rob gave a, you know, hit the nail on the head again with uh, about personalized healthcare. And I think it's important to, that we all recognize there's a hype cycle to some of these terms and trends. And certainly in terms of when I think of personalized medicine, there's a whole bunch of therapeutic interventions that come to mind around personalized medicine, which is really not what we're focused on here. In terms of personalized healthcare, I think what we're getting at is the idea that being able to perform diagnostic data from individuals, whether they be inpatients at a hospital, whether they be at home, whether they be interacting with the healthcare system, but not do they really need to come into hospital. The sorts of technologies that Intramix and others are developing could actually start to collect critical data in real time from people in all of those situations. And, you know, as an example of the promise, is just one little example. You know, the world's just been sort of plunged into this COVID-19 pandemic. And, of course, one of the interesting things about the diagnostics there is that when you want to know if you've been infected by this virus, you have to physically go somewhere, get a test, you know, you wait. And, of course, there's issues with isolation, with quarantine, et cetera, that possibly would be very different if you could actually get real-time data uh, simply in either just a binary yes-no format you know, when you want to know. I think there's, you know, there's an increasing sort of 
awareness around the possibility of, hey, maybe we could do these things better. And then, of course, what's really intriguing to me is to find out about some of the some of the markers that are used now in clinical labs or are kind of on the cusp of being used. Maybe the specificity is not so well known for a clinical condition, but perhaps the trends that Kevin spoke of, you know, that over time, this, this biomarker really going up or going down, that sort of information is just not really known about as far as I know, except for things like glucose, where you can monitor these things in real time. So they're the really exciting things to me about personal healthcare, personal diagnostics. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of promise in being able to have that one-on-one relationship between the the patient or the consumer and what's actually happening in and about themselves and how that informs and supports any goals that the health provider working with that person are tracking towards. What are the big challenges right now? Perhaps, Kevin, I'll bring you in here. What What's getting in the way of this at the moment? There's two steps to the process. There's two pieces to the puzzle. The first is this recognition of the target. And as we've already discussed, that's a fairly mature technology. We already know how to make proteins and nucleic acids that will bind almost any target of interest. The second step is then transducing that binding event into some output that can be detected in a complex fluid like blood or interstitial fluid much less in a complex and changing environment like in the body. I guess the third challenge is then actually getting the sensor into the place where it needs to be to make the measurement into the bodily fluids. That second one, I'm a molecular biophysicist by training, studying how biomolecules respond to buying their target has really been my bread and butter for a long time. So that was what my own group really focused on. And we think about a lot. And it really has been the key problem from my perspective in this biosensor field. The glucose sensor has been successful because evolution gave us a gift in the protein that's based. That sensor employs glucose oxidase to recognize its target. But in addition to recognizing the target, when it binds glucose, it converts the glucose into a product that can be detected electrochemically. And so, again, evolution gave us a gift in that protein. That protein not only recognizes the target, but it also embodies a mechanism by which that binding event is transduced to an output. Translating that to other proteins that recognize other targets has really been a huge hurdle in the field and has prevented any realistic progress for a very long time. And then last, as I mentioned, we also do need to face the fact that we need to get the sensors into places where they can sample the targets that we need to measure in as minimally invasive a manner as possible. The reason a billion glucose measurements are made every day, one of the reasons is that the glucose sensor works in subcutaneous placements that are relatively minimally invasive. It's also fair to say that the legacy sensor technology is not reusable. And so that's provided a limitation in how that can be applied. Whereas where we're currently at, we have the ability to leverage that platform continuously over time and modify it to suit different conditions. Is that a fair call? Well, mm-hmm. it depends on what, what you mean by reusable. You know, in a sense, the glucose sensor is reusable in that you can put it in and leave it in for a long time and watch things rise and fall, which is novel compared to prior analytical techniques, which were sort of one-off multi-step batch processes where you weren't going to watch something in real time rising and falling. Using the more broad definition of reusable, can you reuse the glucose sensor, any sensor? For clinical devices, one generally doesn't. Then you have to worry about sterilization issues, et cetera. But that, that first point, I think, is an important one in terms of reusability. So maybe I'll use a different word, reversibility. One of the reasons the glucose sensor was transformative is because it's reversible and can watch things rising and falling in real time. And that was a major breakthrough. I think as well, it's probably worth mentioning that in clinical utility terms, glucose 
the utility is clear there for patients with diabetes. Being able to monitor glucose and adjust insulin levels is critical to their health and their life. In that respect, the word platform is an exciting one to use for this because that does open up the fact that this Aptima technology and its reversibility can be applied to so many different targets that essentially a platform can be a common way to access interstitial fluid, place a sensor in there and look for something important. So on your point, Yanni, I I think that reusability can apply to the platform technology in general terms, and we can swap in and out sensors perhaps in the future, or even build panels of sensors for important conditions. Yeah, Yanni, I think the key point here, it's not so much reusability as that these new platform technologies that Neutromic is developing can keep providing you with information over a significant time period. Then the actual sensor that's placed on the body is not reused once it's stopped using, it's thrown away and a new one would be placed on the body for a new set of measurements. But the key thing is you're getting something close to real-time data so you can monitor trends and changes in a person. I think that's really the most exciting aspect of this because as Kevin rightly said, Reusing something creates all sorts of validation and and sterilization issues that we can't afford to take the risk on. The other interesting thing there is that, you know, from a from a patient user perspective and also from maybe the, the healthcare workers, is that at the moment you've got to, you know, if you want to monitor a marker or a drug or a protein over time, of course you've got to take sequential blood samples, et cetera, or sequential sampling. Those samples all have to go to a lab that involves the hospital or, you know, a pathology clinic immediately. And then, of course, you, you, know, you've got, you know, you've got to run those assays or in the lab. Can you calibrate between those, those measurements? I mean, if there's a change going up or down, that have something to do with other interference or, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of issues around that frequent blood sampling, which many are sold for particular biomarkers. But still that issue of having to, the logistics and the, the processes involved to get that information are sort of costly in terms of time and money and so and, and, and the patient experience. So what we're talking about here is being able to kind of apply a device, uh, a wearable device, where, where, you know, you can just start generating that data and various, you know, healthcare workers can interact with that and make, make decisions in much earlier time points. So given that, given that summary of uh, challenges, and, and thanks for clarifying my, my layman's term, I guess, on the reusability there, so what are the solutions at the moment? Perhaps, Kayleen, I can bring you in here and talk to what you're focused on. So Kevin already brought up the idea of what is necessary is to have some way to transduce the signal of our biological event. So, for example, with the glucose, it's whether or not you have an enzyme present that can measure how much glucose you have. The thing, though, is that this needs to work for all kinds of different targets. And currently, we only have a lot of targets that bind to enzymes and the enzyme produces an electrochemical signal. But if we're going to want to be more general in terms of how many targets that we can detect, we need something that can bind to your target and then cause a signal change. And the way that we're trying to approach that is by using an aptamer. So the aptamer is a DNA sequence that binds to a given target specifically and undergoes some conformational change with a redox reporter at the end. And that creates an electrical signal into our electrodes. So this allows it to work in any sort of biological media because all you need is just some sort of change in the DNA. Yanni, can I follow on there? I think that was a beautiful answer that Caitlin gives. Kevin alluded to one of the other challenges and and why I, I think this technology is so revolutionary, it's really a game changer, is because 
Other biological molecules don't have the problem of selectivity. They can do that. The problem has been that things foul the electrodes and cause surreptitious signals. And what this, this folding concept does is it only gives you a signal when the analyte of interest binds, even if other things do bind to the transducer surface. And I have to say, from my own perspective, I was stunned when I first saw these results because it is exceedingly tolerant to other things fouling. It's still giving you very reliable signals. And suddenly that means we can do these things in this real-time approach in the bodily fluid. And it all comes down from one simple idea, which is make the biological molecule change its conformation when it binds the analyte, and that will give us our signal. So it doesn't matter what else happens, provided we can read that out. So the advances with the Aptima side of things, that still needs the platform approach, doesn't it, to actually figure out where that biosensing is actually going to be placed or where it's going to happen. I think with one of the platforms with the Neutromic Solution is the idea of the microneedles. Perhaps, Simon, you can give us a bit of a breakdown as to what that is and, and Rob, come in as well from your point of view. Sure. So microneedles have been around for, for quite a while, for 20 years or so. As far as I know, they've only been thought of as a, as a kind of a wearable sampling or diagnostic technology for you know, a fairly, fairly short period of time. So when I was a postdoc in, in Seattle, I met Mark Kendall, who was, who was at UQ at the time, went back to work with him. And what we, what we decided to do was to try and use their microneedle technology that they were developing for delivery applications through the skin. And we actually found kind of surprisingly that we could apply microneedles to skin and there was, there was circulating protein that we could detect on the surface of those needles. And so we kind of progressed that along to say, oh, well, actually, you can pull out circulating proteins, proteins that are circulating in blood. For example, things like at the time we were looking at infectious disease markers, things like dengue NS1 infections. So dengue NS1 is a protein indicative of dengue infection and also malaria infections, HIV2 and things like that. So, so it's interesting that at that time we kind of showed that, yes, you can apply these things in such a way that you can pull out selectively proteins that are circulating in blood. And so that was really an interesting place to start from. And so I think, to my knowledge, you know, ever since, we started kind of thinking about these as wearable immunoassays at that time. And the interesting thing was that I don't think I've really seen any other platform, any other technology, where you've, you can combine this idea of a wearable device and something that actually gives you access to you know, to, to biochemical information or biological molecules inside the body. Because whenever I think of other wearable sensors, they're usually not molecular sensors. They're usually physical or sometimes physiological sensing where you're looking at where you're trying to measure muscle tone, respiratory rate, you know, uh, heart rate, etc. So they're, they're really physical measurements. But as far as I know, microneedles are still the only way that you can actually get in under the skin into that richly perfused tissue around the subcut tissue, interstitial fluid, capillaries, etc. So that that's where I think the microneedles uh, sort of come into the story. Yeah, and just uh, just building on what Simon said there, the excitement for us really is that we're now able to build on pioneering work that's happened over a number of years in the microneedle space, and there is so much work going on in this space around how to use them for the delivery of vaccines and other things. And it's just, it's such the perfect medium for us. And to be at a point where we can now 
use this microneedle technology to access the interstitial fluid compartment, like I said before, just opens up uh, you know an information superhighway for us. But essentially, the microneedles themselves are really a delivery mechanism. They're a way to place the electrode and the sensor into the body in a safe way that is minimally invasive, does not cause any kind of patient discomfort, really. And it's it's evolutionary, you know. So the um, the typical way of doing this is to use needles and do blood tests. It's clearly not practical for someone to be walking around with an arm full of needles. But in in the case now, we we can we can produce a patch with micro needles on them, and we can use them to continuously test in a medium that can produce rich information for us. And as Kevin often says to us, we're in the engineering problem space right now with this technology. The hard work's been done. We just have to solve a few questions. So what materials is it made out of? Making sure that it's safe, biocompatible. What's the geometry we need to work with? There's tons of work going out there on shapes, sizes, ways to do this, manufacturing methods. But that's all good news. We're in the part now where we can actually solve these problems and produce something and bring this thing to life. That's fantastic. And Rob, just extending on that a little bit. So as a as a product owner or product manager, mm. when you think about the application for continuous monitoring, would it be fair to say that some of the challenge might be on actually trying to identify what to do first in terms of applying it? What, what's been your experience? Uh, it's been a challenge. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. So uh, we have this wonderful platform technology that the likes of Kevin and Justin have been instrumental in inventing. And we're now in that translational space where we have to identify the points where clinical need is most urgent, married with which of these sensing technologies is most mature and feasible, and bringing those two things together to produce a product that makes a meaningful difference in the world. So, I mean, in my job, obviously, I have to try and produce some kind of pipeline and roadmap of the products we're going to produce. And it's about trying to work out that formula of feasibility and need. And I would say that we're driven most by the clinical need, absolutely. So we're out there talking to clinicians a lot of the time, and that's a way to help solve the challenge. But we have a pipeline, probably a list of around 130 targets that we could go after. So we need a way to formulate what are we going to go after first and why. And as you said at the top, for Neutromics, our mission is is really zero preventable deaths due to lack of timely biological data that can apply in so many fields but at the minute our focus has been on acute and urgent areas so particularly with aptamers we feel at the minute that the therapeutic drug monitoring space is important the drug itself is a therapy there isn't a lot of argument that you know a particular drug is useful for a particular indication so if we were to think about severe infections like mrsa or sepsis then A drug like vancomycin is dosed over 6 million times a year in the US. It's a really important drug and it's present in interstitial fluid. And at the minute, it suffers from the same issues that were described before, where blood tests have to be taken on a reasonably regular basis to get any kind of insight or picture as to how the patient is responding to that treatment. And the drug itself can either be nephrotoxic at very high concentrations, or it can be ineffective at low concentrations. And it has a very narrow therapeutic window. So clearly for us, the ability of a sensor to monitor in real time trends and data points of concentration of a drug in a person, that can do wonders. So that can help clinicians make a decision at the right time about what the next dose should be. And that's currently really, really difficult. They're constantly looking in the rear view mirror. And as a consequence, an urgent need is unmet. 
and the consequences for a patient are severe. So they could spend the rest of their life with a chronic kidney condition, or even worse, the infection itself does not get treated effectively, leading to complications, higher morbidity. So the way that we select what we're going to do is trying to find those urgent unmet needs that marry with where's the maturity at for the technology and then try and bring those two together. And I think for us, that initial space of drug monitoring looks really promising because vancomycin is not the only one. There's a bunch of other targets that we could go after. So that's one way we do it. The other way is to obviously look at how that monitoring can change the nature of healthcare itself. So if we're looking at monitoring patients in a hospital, the other lens to look at is how can we extend that continuum of care to outside the hospital? So there's lots of challenges, cost pressures and things on healthcare systems. We want to try and help with that and we think we can. I mean, the patch itself obviously being wearable and it can be remote in nature, uses common technology, Bluetooth, smartphones. We can actually get that data out of a person when they're in the home and send that to clinicians so that those decisions that perhaps may have been made in a hospital can now be made for the patient when they're in the home. And that continuum, that quality of care, the bar doesn't drop because they're in the home, they're able to get the care they need. And that's a path we want to go down as well. And big picture wise, 10, 15 years, perhaps this will all be in the hands of consumers themselves, much in the way that wearables and smartwatches are now. That seems like a long time to wait as a consumer. So I'm hoping that uh, we can actually uh, see some of those pragmatic applications sooner rather than later. I get really excited when I think about this technology in fields that perhaps aren't as well defined, obviously with the drug interventions, as you rightly point out, that ability to stay in the optimal therapeutic zone makes a lot of sense. And it's easy to value that and to put a, a business case around it. But I'm wondering, are there opportunities beyond the drug interventions that kind of deal with other areas broadly across different settings, disability, aged care, home care, mental health, diet and nutrition? Uh, do, do, you have, do you have any comments on that, Rob, or any of the panellists? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kick off. Yeah, I mean, all of those examples you shared, it's very applicable. Yes, we're, we're identifying the use cases. We're talking to clinicians in those spaces. And whilst at the minute we can get insights from clinicians, they're about problems that exist now. I think the beauty of the technology is that it can be combined with other streams of data to produce insights that have never been available. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. But if we you know, think about diet and exercise, then clearly you can see the glucose monitors are moving into that space because there's a lot of people that find use in understanding that and modifying their diet so they perform better. But that can happen in many other spaces. So chronic kidney disease is a huge issue across the world. And we can bring new insights to that with our wearable sensor. For people at all the stages of chronic kidney disease, very early stage, we could be looking at things like phosphate. We can use that to help people choose and select their diet more efficiently in the early stages of chronic kidney disease all the way through to stage four stage five where dialysis could be occurring and we can help make that more personalized more comfortable there are so many ways that we can help people danny if i can follow up on rob's comments this is a transformational technology this is not evolutionary this is revolutionary there are other than glucose and a very small number of other molecules we have never historically been able to measure molecules continuously in real time in the body. This is a fundamentally new thing. And my experience in my 56 years is that whenever a technology is, is developed and offered out to the world that can do something fundamentally new, there will be applications that we're just absolutely not creative enough to think of yet. And I look forward to that day. I'm going to be so excited when some home user has come up 
with some fundamentally new application for our technology that just never even occurred to us. I know it's going to happen. Yeah, and I'd like to follow up too. You know, I think that Rob and Kevin have really talked about the exciting possibilities and you referred to the fact that how do we choose what to go for? And I think that the simple answer to that is at the moment we get guided by the clinicians. We're trying to give them a device that allows them to get the information on known biomarkers and known drugs in a quicker, more rapid way so that they can just go and see someone in emergency and rather than take a blood test and come back an hour or two later and try and remember what the patient's about, they get the answer there and then. So it's really, we're starting by trying to give them a tool that allows them to have better decisions on things they already know about. One of the swings or the the flip side of that is, as Kevin and Rob have referred to, we have a technology that can actually monitor things we haven't been able to monitor before. And so one of the bigger challenges in sensing is to be able to actually develop a sensor for something that's approved as a biomarker. Well, our technology can start giving the information about the levels of those biomarkers, say, in the interstitial fluid, and then we'll start the process of identifying new biomarkers and helping researchers to work out what are the limits for those biomarkers so they can then be approved? So it's sort of a two sides of the coin. We've got to get traction in the market. We've got to give people what they need now. We've got to look to the future as well. I think this is a really great point to make about the collaboration with Neutromics and researchers and clinicians, investors, just all the key stakeholders. I think it's it, it's just such a, such a great open-minded, open-sourced idea to actually bring in. So you can actually rank and prioritise what would add most value today, given scarce resources that you have to actually build something and commercialize it and put it out into the market. So it makes a heck of a lot of sense to take that approach. And philosophically, it's really aligned and and it resonates from my point of view. So I'd, I'd imagine there's a big challenge there in terms of continuing to work through the feedback that you're getting and trying to, you know, find your way through that. When I think about digital health innovation or how we bring digital feeds into the, the healthcare setting, we're not proposing a disruption here, are we? This is more an enhancement to the way things are already being done. Do you have any comments about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can jump in here. I think that's really important for us. I think through all of our research over the last few years, the thing we've realised that's most important is that decisions are made and they're made by professionals in healthcare. But the tools that they have available to them right now perhaps don't give them the inputs that they need to make those decisions. I'm not really a huge fan of the word disruption in healthcare. I don't think that's what we want to do. We don't want to produce a whole pile of data that clinicians have to wade through. What we want to do is provide what's most useful at the point in time that they need it to make the decision that they need to and they want to. So that's our goal in all of this. And when we look at specific targets and we talk about clinical utility, that's actually what we mean. We're trying to understand at what point in time is that decision most necessary And obviously the clinicians, they have this wealth of experience and they have these patterns of recognition in their head that they use. And all we're providing is an additional piece of data that's provided at the right time or the time that they think they need it. And then their decision changes. The intent is that the outcome changes because of that. We want to support them and the healthcare system that's full of people that have to make these decisions. I mean, I suppose in the future, clearly there's the opportunity to marry up data with other data and turn that into tons of insights where decisions can be made differently. But that's a continuum. And, you know, we're humans, we have to take on board the way that things happen now and work our way through that. As Kevin and Justin said, we're providing something that's never been provided before. And we're not immediately going to flick the switch and move to a completely different way of caring about people. So we have to work in the way that healthcare is delivered right now in the best way we can that is minimally disruptive. 
actually, and being cognizant of workflows that exist now and the people that are involved and help them do the best that they can just by providing this new insight. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make, Rob, because health gets talked about a lot in terms of innovation and particularly with the advances in the computing platforms, artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum processing. You know, we can trick ourselves into thinking that there's this version of life that's, that can be turned on immediately because the tech promises so much. But we still need to be able to move at human speed, don't we? We need to be able to acknowledge the current workflows and the challenges in providing healthcare services today, not trying to disrupt that in terms of saying, stop doing it that way and now do it this way. It's more about actually how we align with the current approach, the cultural approaches to delivering healthcare services to be able to exploit this technology, but do it in a seamless way and do it in a way that's not too challenging or difficult for the current culture to be able to incorporate. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think in whatever setting we apply the technology, those factors are critical to adoption. If we do want to change things, then adoption is critical. So we have to tread carefully through that space to understand not just the, the unmet need, but the desire and the needs of the people that are going to implement this. And that's critical to us as a business to be listening all of the time to those needs and react accordingly to what we're producing. Yeah, I think that the, the key point here is we're developing this amazing tool that's going to allow people to do all sorts of things that they may not have been able to do before. But we have to be guided by the people that do the, the actual medicine. We need to be guided by what they need. And so all we can present to them, here's the tool, how can it best be used and what else would you like the tool to do? And so it's really got to be an end-user-driven process. That the company is providing a capability. We don't use the capability. Are there any other structural changes needed aside from cooperating with healthcare providers right now and asking those questions, as you point out, Justin? Is there anything else that needs to be thought about in terms of being able to introduce this type of biosensor approach? Yeah, I think that we need to think about, certainly we need to be thinking about privacy. We need to be thinking about who gets the information because it should only be going to those people that know how to use it. That they're, they're two of the key things that I think are a really important part of it, this platform being a success. They're the sort of things that can cause it to fail, even though the technology is brilliant, if we don't get those things right. But I'm sure others might embellish on this, actually. Any, any comments from the panel? Yeah, I mean, obviously I would echo that. Bringing a diagnostic device to market is a tough gig and it contains many <laughs> conditions, uh, regulatory conditions uh, and otherwise. So... Yeah, clearly we've got to make it safe and it's got to be effective. And that's our task as you know, a company that's building out the technology. And particularly around patient data, that, that's a big minefield that we need to be cognizant of and ensuring that the data itself is uh, secure. And as Justin said, that it's provided to the people that are going to use it and use it in the right way. So I know we talked about the continuum of going from putting the data in the hands of experts and then making it a little more remote and then perhaps in the future it's with consumers. We have to be aware of what that means when we say that. These are not, you know, simple decisions that are taken and it's important that the right people see that data and can interpret it in the right way. I think for the consumer space, there would be a need for the data to produce an insight that is safe and has been proven to be safe before that happens. So yeah, we're very aware of that need. Who else is a beneficiary of this? Are there any other stakeholders that that you could contemplate? So we've, we've sort of focused on the iterative enhancement to conventional healthcare service provision. 
and the value of having continuous data informing and supporting decisions towards healthcare outcomes. There's been a remark on thinking about the privacy of the patient and who gets access to the data and need-to-know basis and relevant to the outcomes they're looking for. Any other beneficiaries and stakeholders that you foresee in the, in the short or, or longer term? Yeah, I mean, clearly there's the, the hospital networks themselves. They spend an inordinate amount of money on treatment, basically, of symptoms at the minute. So I think there's an opportunity to use the technology to expand preventative healthcare. So a stakeholder is going to be the hospital networks that spend money trying to treat people. And perhaps that money can then be repurposed towards helping prevent disease in people so that this imagined world of remote healthcare actually becomes true in, in the preventative sense, as well as lessening the burden of care in the hospital walls itself and moving it out of that. They're a critical stakeholder in all of this. And through our research, that's been proven to be true. You can see the trend in patients trying to be moved from in hospitals to outpatient clinics and making sure that's safe and reliable. And we see the tool that we've produced is critical in enabling that. So the hospital network spending X amount of dollars on a particular treatment or a particular indication, then that whole economic model starts to change because of our tool. So we're excited about that. And then obviously that brings into the broader picture governments and society. So this is really evolutionary technology we're talking about in terms of stakeholders. It gets very, very big reasonably quickly. But I know, I know Justin and Kevin have probably got some thoughts on this too. And I agree with, of course, everything Rob said there. To, to drill in on a smaller point, though, uh, one more stakeholder I didn't hear you comment on is the clinicians themselves. Right now, the clinicians are under enormous cognitive burden because they've got to see a patient, order a blood draw, have that sent to the lab. They get the answers back hours or days later. They need to think about it again and then make a decision versus walking up to a patient and looking at, at their data in real time. And not only seeing their data in real time, but also seeing the trends over the last 24 hours right there in their hands. That's just going to make their lives, I mean, it's going to affect them in many ways. One, it's going to make their diagnoses and their treatment safer and more efficacious. That's a major benefit for them, as well as for their patients, obviously. But also, it really will reduce their cognitive loads that make their jobs more streamlined, more efficient. I think that's going to have a big impact, too. And we have to remember the care teams that surround patients as well. So nurses and all the infrastructure staff that go around that, they're so busy, they're overworked. You know, in the use case I mentioned earlier around vancomycin, that, you know, there's, there's a request from the treating clinician for a blood test at 11.02 because that's what the timing says. But in the real world, is that possible? You know, life's difficult. So we, uh, we need to bear in mind the importance of those stakeholders too. And I also think that with the one we haven't mentioned, just the families of, of people with conditions, you know, one of the hardest things in my experience is when you have a loved one that's ill, do you take them to hospital or not? If that information is already beamed off to the hospital and they say, yeah, bring that person in, the level of stress and anxiety diminishes greatly. And of course, you get that person to the hospital in a more timely manner. And then, you know, you can even go beyond that, depending on what the markers are, what we're monitoring and, and whether it's not no longer a clinical device but a lifestyle device, then we've obviously got the stakeholders of all the, all the users that want to lead a healthier lifestyle. So I think that, as Rob said, it's, you know, revolutionary and it just keeps expanding. And, and as Kevin said earlier, there's probably all these users that we haven't even thought of yet because we haven't come up with the, what the right application is for the, for the tool for their use. 
I kind of wanted to build up on that about how the user can really benefit from this technology too, because as a female and a Asian, there's a lot of discrepancies between what is clinically known about certain therapeutic treatments and what has been tested, who has been tested, and who in the public it's going to apply to. So I think this is going to be really important to find out those variations between yeah what has been known and what it hasn't. Building on what Kaylin's in the U.S., the numbers are women suffer from adverse side effects from drugs, clinically relevant, clinically significant adverse side effects at twice the rate men do for a variety of reasons, including the abysmal fact that so much of medical research has been done on males rather than females. But in addition, there are physiological differences between men and women that cause women's responses to drugs to be more variable. And so timely data is even more important for women than it is for men. Uh, someone in the comments also just brought up a stakeholder, uh, the insurance industry, which is obviously is applicable here and in, in the US uh, more than most. And yeah, absolutely. I think they're going to be critical in this. I mean, their model is built on a particular in a particular way right now and clearly providing a new stream of data about patients. There's going to have to be a lot of thinking done in that industry about what it means for the way that patients are looked after, the way that they're charged, the whole thing could potentially uh, be rewritten. Yeah, thanks for uh, remarking on that, Rob, because I think the uh, definitely the payers or the cost of healthcare have a lot to gain when there's no excess or waste in actually delivering an outcome or achieving an outcome. And I could see that as being one of the promises yeah. of this technology as well. I really want to thank panel for coming together today and uh, giving some insights on where the research edges at, the synthesis of a variety of uh, domains in biosensing to produce the commercialization opportunities that are within the Neutromics platform at this point in time. Just for the whole team at Neutromics as well, particularly Roy, who's assisted with putting this together today, big thank you for the cooperative approach and uh, the collaborative approach at putting together this live stream. And I hope that everybody has got some value out of it today. And once again, just wanted to thank everybody for being involved. So Professor Justin Gooding, Dr. Simon Corey, Professor Kevin Plaxco, Dr. Kaylin Leung, and Robert Crowder. Thank you so much for your time today. And a, a big thank you to the audience that's come along today and participate. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode. <laughs>